Raw Ag is your link to the food chain, and every episode will take you somewhere along that chain. From conception to consumption, you will hear from the cutting-edge players in Australian agriculture with industry news, unique views and presentations. We can all be better farmers, sustainable, regenerative and innovative. We can all be more informed and aware consumers. And Raw Ag is your next step in that direction. Brought to you by Ace Radio and Tamania Angus. I'm Kate Mead and today it is my honour to introduce you to host Tom Gubbins. Dr Enoch Berkman is a vet from Esperance in Western Australia. Enoch grew up in Wild Horse, Colorado and came to Australia after graduating from university. He fell in love and never left. Enoch has been actively involved in Australia's pesty virus research and in 2006 he started Australia's first commercial lab for the diagnostics of persistently infected animals. One of the most enthusiastic and energetic and passionate people I've ever met it is my great pleasure to bring you an interview with Enoch Berkman, recorded in Rockhampton, with thanks to Ollie from Auctions Plus. Enoch, welcome to the Rorak Podcast thanks, up here Tom. in sunny Rockhampton. And um, we, I don't really usually talk about time and stuff on podcasts because you know you drop them all sorts of time. But uh, here we are, uh, Beef Week, Beef 2021. Week. Amen. We've made it back. Yeah. We're here again. And how did you get here? Uh, by plane, Tom. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> a few planes, wasn't it? Because yeah. of COVID. Well, the first year I came was in 06. I, I moved to Australia in late 2003. Obviously, congenital speech impediment. I'm not from here. You might, I don't know if you've noticed. You know this about me. You know, I'm, I'm, I a do, sep- I'm a Seppo. Yeah. Sepp Estonia, south of Canada, north of Mexico. Yeah. Yeah, I came in 2006 <laughs> uh, on behalf of uh, uh, Pfizer. Yeah, and then I came in 9, 12, 15, 18. And then my, my premier was going to make me stay in WA. I couldn't believe it. Right. But then he they let me come, which was great. And uh, 26 hours in the air, various exotic localities, including Cairns. And here you And are. we're here. And then I ran into you almost immediately. Which well was, done. Which was yeah. precipitous. It was excellent. It was great to see you. And Lucy. Yeah. And so we know where you're from. Um, yeah. What about, how did you become a vet? And tell us a bit about oh, yeah. your early life. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, as you know, I grew up in a little town, uh, Wild Horse, Colorado, out in eastern Colorado, town of 12 people. So, Wild Horse is probably a bit of an exaggeration as far as nomenclature goes. It really probably should have been dirty chicken. <laughs> but, <laughs> but Wild Horse still was pretty cool in uni. Like, hey, where are you from? Wild Horse. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that was pretty That's, handy. That was a sort of yeah, a pretty I line. Was, I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, I, I thought it was. I don't know if it was or not, but <laughs> I, it felt like a cool line. But, um, yeah, so I grew up in Wild Horse, and uh, it was a small town, and uh, I was pretty good at school. So, you know, I was a valedictorian. Interestingly, um, I didn't get a scholarship uh, at uni because I wasn't in the top 10% of my class. And my mom said, but but you should be. You were the valedictorian, which is the ducks. Yeah. And uh, and uh, so she talked to the people, and they said, well, he's in the 13th percentile. Wait, wait. Oh, he's number one out of seven because there are seven <laughs> kids in my class. So I got the scholarship, which helped yeah. helped me go to school. <laughs> so yeah, and um, the the community said, "Ah, oh, we need a vet." You know, they wanted an international airport as well, but um, they also wanted a veterinarian because there's no vet in Wild Horse or Kit Carson or and uh, and and I, and I just um, I really loved that community and the people that I'd grown up with, and I wanted to give something back. And everyone said, "You think you'd make a great vet?" So so I I tried to get into vet school, and lo and behold, I did. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and and now I'm quite a ways away. Yeah, I kind of screwed that part up. Maybe it was. And so not necessarily a childhood with animals and... No, no, yeah, that's an interesting part of it. Yeah, so as far as why I wanted to be a vet, well, um, look, my family homesteaded there in 1909. You know, when they when they broke that country out, they gave it away. It was... I don't know if it was intentional, but I suspect that it was. They gave away um, a half a section at a time, which is 320 acres. And if you've ever been out in that country... 
to make about enough off 320 acres to maybe buy a couch, you know, yeah. or, or maybe maybe a maybe a maybe a recliner, maybe a small screen television, and yeah. um, and so everyone went out there thinking they were going to, you know, you know, this they lived they're back east do well. and they're going to go there and and they moved there and a lot of the people they acquired the property next to them and, and they got bigger and my family was and it still had land when I was growing up, but but dad had gone off to Vietnam and and um, had a had a couple master's degrees and. And we moved back to Wild Horse and, and ran a filling station. And and um, I think I've told you this before: is I wasn't jealous of my friends with cattle, but I was envious. And and I think that's probably part of what drove me to want to be a, a veterinarian. Of, you're not a fan of the word jealousy, are you? <clears throat> no, that, life's too good to be jealous of anything. But, <laughs> but I mean, look, I'm I'm envious of your beautiful pink shirt. That's that's Thanks, that's sir. lovely. Thank you. But um, Thank you. the um, I, I, I'm I'm an optimist, and I and I love making people smile, and and uh, and, and uh, I love making people laugh. And that's, and um, that's good. Yeah, that is good. So you've um, been making a few people laugh recently with your YouTube. <laughs> oh, how how many true, people are you true. making laugh with your YouTube? Uh, well, I've got it's, it's hilarious. It's 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 actually quite remarkable. I've got eighteen thousand subscribers, um, which is nuts. Yeah. I started it in October, and it was it was just a lark. Um, the vet eighteen thousand subscribers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is pretty nuts, eh? So the, the students, the vet students, they come and ride with us, you know, and come and sit in the car, and and they kept saying, "Have you seen this Cody Creelman?" And I was like, yeah, "Yeah, yeah, he's pretty neat." Yeah, and I watched them those videos and good guy and um, they said you should do that I'm like ah oh, yeah yeah nah you bet and then my son was like hey dad you know lots of little kids apparently what are you gonna do when you grow up I'm gonna be a YouTuber yeah. so my son was like dad dad I wanna have a YouTube channel I wanna do you know Sonic the Hedgehog videos I said oh radio I said look I'll, and he hounded me it's like being a like, computer like, game critic like, or something. yeah like little kids do you know they hound you. <laughs> you you've got kids you know what it's like dad 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 what so, so oh, I'll try so I tried to set it up and it was like, oh, you're under 18. It's too hard, son. And I'd just been in Lance's abscess, and the, and the farmers were lovely, and they had their kids there. And, and I said, man, this is going to be pretty cool. Let's video it, eh? So we videoed it. And uh, and then um, I thought, oh, yeah, I'll just I'll go ahead and just set up my own YouTube page. I thought, Enoch the Calvet. And, um, and so that's what it's and, called, and, Enoch the Calvet. Enoch, better, everyone better look up that. Enoch the Calvet, yeah. E-N-O-C-H space the space cow space vet. <laughs> pretty straightforward. <laughs> and um, anyway, this video went viral. It was pretty mad. Like, it just, uh, the pimple popper crowd got a whole of it and then yeah. there's a lot of farmers that talk on it and yeah it's just it's absolutely ridiculous and um yeah i think i had two million hits in march and then i got monetized so like, i'm getting paid to put stuff on youtube it's just madness yeah, yeah like uh and um someone said what are you doing with it i said well my wife said hey can you get lewis that's our second boy so we got eli lewis adelaide and angus Tamania Angus, his middle name's Tamania. Tamania. <laughs> and um, and um, she said, can you give him a remote control car? So I went to go get him a car, and they had like the you know, junky cars that kids break after a day or two, and then yeah. they had the fancy car. And I'm like, I want to use my YouTube money. So I got him a nicer car, yeah. remote control car. So that's what I'm doing with my YouTube money, if that was your next question. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. So, Enoch, um, I first came across you really when we had a little bit of a uh, health scare in our herd, you know, yeah, when Pesty yeah. came through. Oh, man. And um, at the time, I think Pesty was sort of a forbidden word, you know, something you swept under the carpet. You probably still yeah. do a little bit, but we decided not to do that and get you Amen. over. And, oh, man, and, it was and, awesome. And, oh. and sort of, I suppose... Um, uh, take on a bit of the responsibility of oh, destigmatizing. Mate. Oh, mate, you did a, a fantastic job there, and you helped me a lot as well. So, I'd, so a bit of the backstory there is, you know, I moved here from Australia, and I went out to an Aboriginal school, and they had a they had a few cows, and there's a cow that was down. She'd gotten into box poison with fluoroacetate, is what we think, and, and she died while I was trying to treat her. It's either that or I'm a really bad vet, one of the two. I'm going to blame the fluoroacetate. And yeah. um, so I said, I, just, for you I had the very first student that I had from Murdoch with me, and I said to him, hey, do you mind if I do a postmortem? And they said, well, are you going to charge us? 
And I said, no, I like doing postmortem, so we'll do it for free. And the calf was uh, P.I. And it had all the congenital defects you normally see. And I told him what it was, and the guy said, what's that? I said, oh, yeah, BVD, bovine pestivirus. Never heard about that. Oh, well, maybe this guy you know, maybe lives under a rock. Turns out that not many people really talked about it at that time. So I went and tried to find some vaccine. So it was um, understood a bit better in the U.S.? Oh, yeah. When I yeah. moved here, there were 160 licensed vaccines for BVD. And in my food animal medicine internship, which I did after I finished vet school, I did a study with Fort Dodge on uh, an efficacy trial on their vaccine with a gal named Hannah Van Kampen, who's one of my one of my mentors and a really good lady, just a real positive person that loves exploring information, yeah. a real scientist. And um, so anyway, I found the vaccine, and then and so I started using that, but then I realized that we needed a way to test the animals, and so um, I set up a lab in the spare bedroom of my house to do ear notch testing. Yeah. And so I started doing that, and then that's kind of how you'd heard about me. And, and really, it was just kind of, it was grumbling along. I'd set up the lab um, to... Uh, I tell young vet veterinarians this story. There's a scholarship that the Australian Cattle Vets put out called the Rural Practice Scholarship. And you had to be a vet working in a rural area and you had to have a, a proposal of a study you wanted to do. And I, I put forward one on developing a voluntary eradication scheme for BVD for aspirants. And they gave me the money. And, and I didn't think I had a great um, application, but I was pretty stoked they gave me the money. So I went to America uh, to this BVD eradication meeting, and Hannah Van Kampen was one of the organizers, and she'd worked with me during my internship. And she said, hey, Enoch, send us an abstract, and we'll, we'll, maybe you can put up a poster. And blow me down and let me talk. And um, so I was trying to get this thing going, setting up an ear notching, testing, uh, getting the stuff to put together a lab. And I met this guy over there, Bill Hessman, who's another mentor and a good friend, who said, um, I can help you. And he was testing. He'd done this massive study where they, they looked at the impact of a PI on the feedlot pen, and it was um, $68 per fed animal, the impact of the PI on the, on the wow. rest of the pen mates, yeah, if, yeah. If, it, if, it, if it got put in the feedlot. And he was, so he was working for a feedlot uh, testing. He was testing 800,000 animals a year. And he was a little old town of I can, I can see the smile on your face. You once told me, you, you once told me, it made me a bit cross, that it, it, pest is a neat disease. It is neat. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, so, it's, it's got a beautiful, we need to kick its ass, 100%. <laughs> yeah. We're going to eradicate this puppy. The Kiwis are way in front of us. But So I set up the lab. But I was grumbling it along, and then when you called me, and, um, and then we talked about what happened to you, and I said, this is an amazing opportunity to help the rest of Australia to understand the disease. And by you allowing me to talk about it openly in front of that Team Tamania meeting that day, it just absolutely absolutely took that disease and I think put it in front of people's faces and the Angus breed especially got right behind trying to manage it and yeah, um, yeah it was a good thing you're a good man well it was um, it was good it was good for us and we uh, we didn't we definitely learned a lot you know and, and by actually getting out there and talking about it you know it was it was a positive thing for us too and, and for me that domino of getting that scholarship years later I became the president of the Australian Cattle Vets and I was speaking to Ann Cover, the, the EO at the time and I said hey Ann you know that scho that scholarship that I won hey uh how many other people applied that year? Like, how many people do you know that beat? I'm just kind of curious. You know, I've got a small ego. I need to grow it a little. <laughs> she said, uh, oh, Enoch, it was a very good application. I said, yeah, but you know, how, how many, you know? And she goes, it was a very good application, Enoch. And I said, well, how many? She goes, if anyone else would have applied, you would have probably still got it. <laughs> so I tell that to these young people. I said, there's so many opportunities for young people in the world. But they're all afraid of, they're all afraid of looking silly or, or afraid of rejection. And man, yeah. just get out there and give it a crack because everyone wants to help everyone. And there's only one thing people like better than being helped, I find. And that's people really like helping people. And I learned that from my dad. Um, I could talk about my mentor growing up. We, we lived in a little town and once, once a week, dad, or once a month, yeah. mom and dad would pull us out of school and we'd go to the Big Smoke and go shopping. And, um, and dad would be roaming around the, 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 um, 
the, the supermarket. And, and he'd make, do all sorts of stuff to embarrass us. You know, like stop and tuck his, drop his pants and tuck his shirt in and, you know, stuff like that. Because he just didn't care. Or to my perception, he didn't care. But what he really didn't, he just wanted everyone to feel that he was a free spirit, I think. And then he would just randomly ask people, like someone would be, ma'am, do you know where the mustard is? And he'd just go up to random people and start <laughs> talking to them. And as a kid, I was mortified. Oh, dad, dad, don't talk to her. But you could see these people's faces light up because they were, they were happy to help him. And, and you, what he and taught you, me is... You witnessed it too. Yeah, and I was like, people love helping people. And I think in our society, somehow we've, we've lost a bit of touch with that. And probably that, a little bit that's consumerism. They'd rather that I want your iPhone and you want my iPhone or I want your shirt and, and you think my shirt's okay. Um, we've lost touch of that. And I think that people want to help people and people want to be helped. And, yeah. and those two things... They need each other, yeah. and so it's a beautiful world. And so that, so that was that was my one of my early mentors was my dad. And um, yeah, so you do you've been doing a bit of research. There's also recently you've done a you've also done some research into uh, heifer AI yeah, versus yeah. Uh, yeah, natural yeah. sort of. Well, yeah. uh, tell us a bit about yeah, that. Yeah, man, that's pretty cool. So okay, so the backstory there is um, so when I moved to Esperance, most of the folks that I my clients were joining their heifers for about three months. Same as their cows, and at the same time of year. Yeah. And, and I went out, I'd start preg testing for people, and I'd go through the heifers, and they'd be, you know, 90-some percent. And then you get into the second calvers, you know, and that'd be a big 80% hit. And I kept saying, oh, geez, I'm sorry, because, oh, man, that's a bummer, because that's the worst animal to have empty, in my opinion, is a second caver. Yeah. You know, and they go, oh, no, that, that's what we always get. And I said, well, whose fault is that? And I said, and so I started formulating this idea, and part of that was from uh, the More Beef from Pastures um, Train the Trainer program with um, Dr. Rod Manning. I went and had a listen yep. to him, and, and also another mentor of mine, a guy named Kit Farrow, who's been over here a bit. Yeah. Spent some time with him, with uh, Don and John Palmer, were friends that had taken me to Kit Farrow's, and we used to sit and talk about management strategies, and they really impressed on me that you don't need to get every heifer pregnant. It's not important. You, you join more heifers, join them short, join them early, so that more of them are actually cycling when the bull goes in the next year. Yep. Heifers take longer to get back in calf. So, so I started the idea is that you you give them an opportunity to get the calf out, and so there's more interval between generally between calving or the mean of the calving date and the join date. Yes. So yeah. a cow on average takes 55 days after she calves start cycling, and in a normally cycling herd, you're going to get 60% per 21 days. So in the first, if there if it takes 55 days, you got 30 days up your sleeve of the calving. The first 30 days of the calving season, all of those girls are probably going to be cycling when the bull goes in, and that's 60% of 20. So 60% plus one-third of 24 is eight, so 68% of the cows are cycling when the bull goes in if everything's perfect. Yep. And Ever, I, I, heifers I, I, take 30 days longer. Yeah, so, uh, people confuse that with a genetic effect, and it's actually not. It's well, actually, uh, there's a little bit of a genetic yeah, effect. Everything's, her, everything's heritable, but, but it, it's but mostly environmental. It's mostly environmental, isn't it? So, yes. but, but the, and the, um, you know, the confusion is that you get rid of all the late carvers, so they, they were all the ones that were genetically inferior, so your problem's fixed, but it's actually a bit more, more right. than that, isn't it? Oh, well, preg testing's a very important management attribute, but again, because and the consumption rate is purportedly, you know, in, in the high 90s, it's quite good, but just like in humans, you know, cows don't tell their friends they're pregnant until six weeks, we tend to wait till 12 weeks, because there's a certain number of conceptuses that they, even though fertilization occurred, that egg doesn't stick, and either either there's not enough progesterone support with not big enough, not a big enough CL, or the, or the, or when the embryo elongates, there's not enough contact with that endometrium to get the early pregnancy detection factor to work, and that's why we get 60% per heat cycle, and then we get the 40% that remain to get another 60%. And so in those first 30 days, you can get the 60 plus one, one third of the 24, you know, yeah. which is which is another eight. So actually, you're 68. And now the dang heifer takes 20 to 30 days longer. So 
if you join your cows and your heifers at the same time, really the only heifers that are going to be cycling when the bull goes in on average are those that calve in the first day or two of the calving season. So I tried to get my guys to join them a little bit earlier and a little bit shorter and not to put so much emphasis on getting them all pregnant. And one of my slogans is, you know, you're not married to them. You know, don't get married to your heifers. Let the mating program pick the winners. And then I started synchronizing them to tighten it even more. And then I thought, well, I'm going to synchronize them and I want to mitigate calving issues. Why don't I integrate fixed time AI? So that really took off. And I've got over half the district AIing their heifers. And it's just been fantastic because they have such an investment in it. Because they're like, oh, yeah, that's a general calf. And that was a Chisholm. You know, and we've got some command happening in there. Or or let's insert some of your fantastic bulls. Like, all those Berkeley's done an amazing thing for the entire Angus um, um, yeah. breed, so, you know, those sorts of genetics and people go, wow, and they really get a vested interest in it because they don't just say, oh, these are some lovely calves from last year. They go, oh, that's that's a Berkeley daughter or what have you. That sort of stuff is really empowering and they yeah. get excited and it's just grown and grown and grown and they tell their friends. But there are still a few people that are kind of like, yeah, on the fence. Meanwhile, Meat and Livestock Australia, you know, they put out their call for a PDS and we've got a producer group called A Sheep, a great group of really progressive producers that obviously run Wait for it, sheep. Yeah. <laughs> but, but a lot of what they do is pasture stuff. So they decided. That's to have, all right. I will forgive them. They decided to have a beef section. So I, I was like, heck yeah, I'm in. I'm joining a sheep. But, but you're a cow guy. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So we got this beef group, which has been really good, and um, and we put a proposal forward. And what we did is we hijacked the heifers. So imagine you and I are heifers. Hey, how you going? Yeah. And then I come in, and half of us, those with the odd numbers, got AI'd, synchronized and AI'd. Yep. And on the same day that you got AI'd, we put the bulls in with the even numbers. So it's 50-50. You see, it's beautiful. Half got AI'd, the other half went straight. To Ten days later, we boxed them, and they got managed identically together the rest of the way. Yep. And then we measured conception rate. We measured dystocia, heifer mortality, calf mortality. Got some, got some weaning weight stuff. And then the rebreeding, and that rebreeding is that's that's been the focus of my entire career as a veterinarian. How can I get more of these second calvers back in calf? That's really what I wanted to do. And so, so we ran it, and and that's what I'm presenting on tomorrow. And man, it is radical. It is cool. So we got we got 0.8% more of them pregnant, um, and then we, we were able to reduce um, dystocia by um, by about half. We were yep. able to reduce calf mortality by about half, and we were able to reduce um, heifer mortality by like 90%. It's just awesome. And then we got 15 more kilos of calf, partly because they calved earlier. The AI ones on average calved 8.2 days early. 62% of them. Eight days. 8.3. On average. Yep, right. And 60% some odd percent of the calves are already on the ground by the due date. Yeah. That's cool. Versus 20% in the natural mates, just the natural distribution. And so more of them are cycling when the bull goes in, and that's what we saw at the rebreed. You know, we got that almost 3% better conception rate. And that's the money shot. That's what I'm aiming for, is to get more of those girls in cap More, more interval to get back yeah, in line yeah. within, the, within the 12 months. Yeah, yeah, get them. So I just love it. So it's just, it was really fun to take what I've been doing because you could look over the fence and go, ah, oh, yeah, but that was a good year or oh, yeah, but but to have them in context where they were managed identically other than those 10 days when they were pulled off and synchronized. Yeah. It's just awesome. <laughs> so, oh, mate, it's rad. It's like you. You're, you're data-driven. Like, t- look what Absolutely. Team Tamani yeah, has yeah. done. That's what makes Team Tamani work is all that data you get oh, back from yeah. your cooperators. No, it, it's much easier to make a decision when you actually know Amen. what is. Yeah, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Eh, no, brother? that's right. Yeah, um, Enoch, um, Rorag has a little bit of theme talking about environment and our yeah, role yeah. in it. And, yeah. um, you know, and, uh, while um, we want to be responsible and make sure that we're doing everything we can to look after the environment, um, sometimes um, 
what we're asked to do perhaps is um, a little extreme or what are, you, what are you th- your thoughts on um, you know how, how the animal might be an, a, a, a part of the solution yeah well look um, I, was, I was lucky to grow up where I did um, you know eastern Colorado ranchers and dryland wheat farmers and um, I, I had no idea that vegetarians existed um, let alone vegans and um, until I went to uni and because it's uh, university and vet school I thought it, I expected to walk into a class full of cowboys and cowgirls and um, there was a back row of us and well, vegans are a bit like methane though they don't have a very long half-life do they <laughs> well they don't have enough iron in their diet possibly yeah I'm gonna have to get it from somewhere no, else. I think they give up being and then new ones have to come in all the time <laughs> yeah. well they're pretty good at promoting it so so I, but when I went so I went to uni and then I got exposed to these sort of folks and I actually wrote articles in vet school called um, they're called cow sense and I, and I just talked about some of the the um, philosophies that I developed over time living down in eastern Colorado and I see this is kind of crazy backstory there's plenty of crazy backstories here but I used to be a, um, a field herpetologist for the Division of Wildlife and we counted snakes and am- uh, reptiles and amphibians as indicators of environmental health and they hired me because you know I grew, grew up out there and I knew everybody and it was easy to get on property and um, the biodiversity on the ranch land was intact as it was when the bison roamed and, and you know in the Cherokee and the Utes and the, and the yeah. Arapaho were doing what they were doing it was intact especially in well-managed rotationally grazed systems because that's what the bison used to do they would come through and denude the landscape and the antelope would follow and graze the reshoots yep. the 35 million bison before the white man came and as an act of war knocked them out to try to not to pinch off the food supply for the Native Americans when they were at war with them yeah. before we you know became a bit more ethical in how we were managing that situation um, which we finally did but um, but the, the role of a, a rancher with a good mind of re- and most guys have been practicing regenerative ag for years just like you you want to give it to your kids and your kids yeah. want to give it to their kids we, we're, we're bonded to that land and um, the biodiversity on ranch land really highlighted to me that sustainable grazing agriculture is good for the environment like cellulose is the product of grass and, and methane is produced from the anaerobic degradation of cellulose so if, so if grass isn't grazed and it falls on the ground and if it degrades anaerobically like if it gets wet or gets trapped under litter it turns into methane and that's why the Everglades and the swamps produce methane you know when you give grass to a cow it eats it breaks it into short chain volatile fatty acids which it absorbs and that's energy makes ATP into ATP you know the energy unit that runs in the mitochondrial all that good stuff we learned in uni in the yeah. Krebs cycle there's a little bit of spillover of methane but the cool thing as you said methane's got a, only has a half-life of 10 years so if you look at it another way if the population of cows in the world is the same today as it was 10 years ago our footprint on global warming is the same but there's a caveat here Every year we're getting better. Every year. I mean, look what Breed Plan's done with Angus. Yeah, yeah that's right. And so the, the quicker we can get an animal to wait, the more efficient we are, the less methane we produce well, and the smaller our footprint is. The most inefficient cattle in the world are in India. Yeah, Alison, Alison uh, Van Annen talked a little bit about this. Oh, right and, you know, she talked about um, the dairy industry in, this, uh, in the States in the 50s. You have 23 million dairy yes. cows. And I've they, got that uh, slide in my talks as well. They've reduced it to nine and tripled production. Yes, and the same so, with beef. There's a similar statistic for beef. The beef cattle population and the amount of um, hot-dressed carcass. And it's we are so much more efficient than we used to be. And what we can do, you doing what you're yep. doing with genomics, me doing as a veterinarian to try to keep them healthy, anything we can do to get that animal to that end goal yeah. is a bonus. The other one I really like is, I talk about it like, I, say, I ask crowds, I'm like, what's your favorite animal? Someone's like, 
sea turtle. Yeah. Good, good one. I like sea turtles. 120 eggs a clutch. How many of those eggs go on to develop to a full-size female turtle that lays eggs out of those 120? Well, let me ask you the next question. Well, there's three clutches a year, so that's 360. How many out of those 360 grow to a full-size turtle that lays eggs? Let me ask you another question. Once they're 30, they start laying eggs, and they lay eggs until they're 100. They can live that long. That's 70 years of 360 eggs. That's somewhere around 23, 24,000 eggs. How many, on average, go on to lay eggs of all those female eggs, which is half of them? And the answer is the same in all species. One. Right. Only one survives. So in our beef herd, your herd, I, I've got uh, 600 cows. You've got, where are you guys up to? Uh, 1,400. 1,400, purebred, yeah. beautiful. It's one cow out, one cow in. Your replacement efforts are there to replace the girls that are leaving. And they're yeah. leaving for ethical reasons. One, they're empty. Yeah. So, you know, they're, they're tying up resources. Two, they're too lame. So that's a, that's a, a welfare out for, for them. We're getting rid of them because they're lame. It's cast for age, cull. Um, maybe they got bad teeth. So, again, they're, 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 not, they're yep. suffering. So, again, yep. for their welfare. They've got a bad udder. That's a calf's welfare. Or they're crazy and they're trying to mow you down, which wouldn't be in your herd because you got good docility. Uh, that's okay. our welfare that we're looking after. Sometimes but we, have to, um, we have to experience <laughs> it to sort of clean up the genetics, don't we? That's it. you got to have outliers. you got to have bad times to make the good times good, Tom. <laughs> but I've had plenty of bad times. But, but the idea is one cow in, one cow out. So, it's the same with a population of 1,000 cows or 1,000 emu or 1,000 kangaroos. It's one in, one out. Now, in the wild population, they produce just as many offspring, and they have just as many replacements, but the extras die inhumanely. Starvation, predation, trauma. What happens in our situation? They're hungry, we feed them. They're thirsty, we give them something to drink. They're sick, we medicate them. And it's the same numbers, and then we humanely euthanize them. And we don't just waste them, we use them for something good, like growing better people with better brains. It's awesome. I love it, man. It's great. It, it's so I want to come back as a cow. I want to come back as a cow. I wouldn't want to come back as a wild animal. Jeez, they do it tough. Have you ever been Have you ever been snorkeling? Those fish, they're all terrified running around in the water. They look quite graceful, but this is what they're doing. <laughs> Except the big pointer. He's going, Yeah. this is my joint. Yeah. And what are you doing in there, snorkely? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, you asked about like, um, kind of how I be- why I became a vet. I was kind of thinking about that a bit. Is um, I kind of became a vet because I was envious of my friends. Yeah, yeah. That Tell are, us about um, why yeah, you became a vet. Yeah, yeah. Know. So, so yeah. So like, I, I became a vet because I wanted to run cows and I wanted to help my friends to be better farmers. I, I, to try to help them to be better farmers if that's what they chose and if they thought I could help. Like, I wasn't wasn't like I'm going to make you better, but I wanted to be helpful to them. And um, and the way my parents raised us was quite quite interesting. Once we turned eight years old, so my brothers remember Aminin and Minian. We had a dog named Mo. So it was Eni meeny miny a dog named Mo living wild horse from the Conoco and <laughs> we used to sing this to people but when we turned once we turned eight the, the idea was uh, if we wanted something we had to figure out how to get it so once we turned eight we had to buy our own clothes and school supplies if we wanted toys and the answer was always the same for anything if you asked dad like hey dad I'm just getting into high school I'd like to get a car he goes cool where are you going to get it or he'd say hmm do you want to go to university or would you like to drive a car? Because I don't think you can do both. <laughs> or, like, hey, Dad, I want to play football. Well, how are you going to get to town, son? You know, like, they, they, he, their strategy was to make us figure stuff out ourselves and to give us very little, they give us a place to sleep and good advice yeah. and breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but anything else we had to come up with on our own. And I wanted, I wanted to be... I wanted to be a cattle. I wanted to be a rancher. I wanted to. I wanted to own property and get back to. My family still had land, but but I was disconnected from that, and that was my goal. And um, and so I went to uni and put myself through undergrad, and I'm still paying off my school loans for uni. And and uh, the the kind of the cool story for me is, so so I'm a farmer now. Yeah, I got about you know, 600 breeders, and I've got to put in a crop this year. And there you yeah, go. so and I think. Well, how did that happen? Because of the way my dad 
always made me say like, hey dad, we want a three-wheeler because our mates had three-wheelers. He said, yeah, go get one. Yeah. Where are we going to get the money? That's that's your problem, not mine. <laughs> <laughs> and that has been a beautiful thing. Yeah. It sucked when I was young, but now that I can see it with a bit of looking back and now having kids, my yeah. wife said, there's no way you're doing that with our kids. Yeah. <laughs> well, Enoch, um, we're getting we're getting near the near the point where I have to ask you about the three Ooh, M's. The but, pointy um, end. The pointy end, yeah. Oh. So, um, some... Um, Mistakes. Hi, mistakes. Um, I'm an exceptionally optimistic person, and and I love a good uh, story. You wouldn't you, uh, you would have oh, yeah. fooled me. Oh, yeah, I yeah. tell you. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I'm yeah, a bit sandbagging here, but um, when something bad happens to me, as it's happening to me, I'm generally like, this is going to make a good story. So it could be something quite bad. I'm like, it's pretty good, but um, but one time. Um, I made the mistake of leaving some pyrotechnic devices in my ute. Right. Uh, I forgot to unpack them as I was preparing for my annual Fourth of July party, which is a big party. And we'd had yeah. a little, we had a little baby boy, Eli, and he this was a, he was asleep. Good, it isn't good. <laughs> and, and I'd made a mortar with a mate to help me make a mortar. Um, you know, a bit of steel pipe with a bit of. So plate this is when you're about fourteen. <laughs> well, mentally, yes. <laughs> I think I was, I was close to forty uh, physically, but mentally, uh, I think I was eleven. Yeah, right. Precise. Yeah. And um, so I, I had the mortar, and I'd sneak up to the Bonnie and just drop in, you know, can of WD forty or starter fluid boom they're pretty fun you know and safe you know relatively safe and anyway it woke up Eli and my wife came and said rah, rah, rah. my wife very rarely uses profanity in this instance she did and she's like rah, rah, rah. fireworks rah, rah. and I was like oh yeah I was deep frying turkeys we, it was a big party we had a couple yeah. hundred people there. it was pretty it was pretty rad it was a good party up until it had a catastrophic end and I'd forgotten these fireworks but they weren't fireworks they were actually a pyrotechnic device like the stuff they do at the Sydney Royal Show but I didn't realize that I'd, some, a mate had him and he said hey do you want these for the 4th of July party and um, <laughs> and I was looking at it and I was a little bit inebriated and, and I really wanted to, sh- to shoot these <laughs> off and um, a mate was hey wow where'd you get that and I said oh yeah another mate and he said I said I'm trying to figure out how to light it because it had like a detonation device had electronic for the because it was a remote electronic detonation unbeknownst to me the fuse wasn't a fuse it was debt cord and so I went down and in front of the crowd just snuck down there I wanted to surprise everybody because I love surprising folks Yeah. and I gave him a good surprise alright and I was holding I had the fuse draped over my hand and in the dark hit it with a lighter and it pretty much almost blew my hand off and, and pretty much burnt my entire face I was blind and spent a week in the burns unit Right. yeah that was a low point that was a low uh, point and, and no point was I thinking this is going to so, be a great story I was thinking you are one dumb son of a bitch <laughs> <laughs> and my wife was reiterating that to me oh man I feel more bad for her Oh, it, that was catastrophic that was a low point um, the only good thing about it was the nurses kept giving me showers. I don't know how hot they were because I couldn't see them. Yeah. But um, but yeah, so that was that was pretty horrific, and they didn't know if I'd ever see again. And luckily, my eyes are back. So yeah. so yeah, I do some pretty stupid stuff. My aversion to risk is is somehow flawed. I've, yeah, I've right. always struggled with that a little bit. Yeah. And um, <laughs> mistakes. You mentioned before to me about mistakes. They le- how you learn oh, from yeah. them. Yeah. When yeah. I graduated, I, I made my own uh, cards and I put a, a yeah Will Rogers quote on there, and he said, "Good judgment comes from experience," and a lot of that comes from bad judgment. <laughs> Another mentor of mine is David Swan, um, and uh, Swanee that hired me here in Australia, and he's been like a dad, like he, in, into the point where he's quite happy to tell me when I'm screwing up. And I remember I, I gave a talk to some vet students on um, uh, how to develop a career as a cattle vet, and I put that up, and, and one of my quotes was, you know, one of Swanee's quotes is, um, experience is best learned through other people's mistakes, and Swanee reckons he's earned a shitload off me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's get into the masterpieces. Oh, my masterpiece. Oh, I got to say <laughs> that um, my my kids and my wife is awesome. You're good on you. It's really yeah. good. Yeah, well you know it goes. Yeah, that's uh, pretty, pretty amazing. So, and, and the... 
the avarice and being a workaholic is a bad thing yeah. and, and trying to find work balance so here I am they're there I'm here but um, I'm such an enthusiast for yeah. telling what I do you certainly oh, are you know, I mean, I, I only, I only ever see you they're up awesome. do you go down yeah sometimes yeah no worries not too bad but, um, but yeah but my kids are awesome and I need to make sure that I don't that I don't screw that up yeah, yeah. they're pretty awesome final question is yeah. uh, mentors well my dad I think his very unique perspective on life he's got a master's in psychology he used to mess with on Fridays we'd all sit around the, the living room and, and, we'd, and he'd, we'd take turns on being the moderators you know there's Meanie and Miney and it, Miney's the moderator so if there was an argument he would, he would step in and we would talk about various social things and like it's pretty deep stuff looking back and then I started to work when I got a little bit older and I started reading some of his books I started to work out when he was messing with me like so how does it make you feel I'm like dad I know what you're doing <laughs> you stuck that shit off um, so my dad a bit and then um, and then I, when I came back and was a snake hunter we lived at these lovely people um, the Palmers Don and John Palmer and Bob and Marie Palmer um, were the dad and they had this beautiful property where these Mossasauga rattlesnakes lived and they're just such genuine people and, and we were living there catching snakes but I would often give my hand in the cattle yards and help with branding and he pulled a few calves with them and, and, and they took me around to um, uh, Kit Farrow if you don't know Kit Farrow it's just worth subscribing yeah. to him he's, he's, he's quite a it's quite a story really he was a, he was a small producer north of Cheyenne Wells he, 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 had, he had his idea that cattle were getting too big Mm-hmm. Um, and he felt that we needed some moderation. He was a fan of composites as well. They produced a bull Colorado hobo, who's a red Angus you might have heard of. That was mm-hmm. probably what really got him going. And and he had similar to Team Tamani. He had all these cooperators, and the Palmers were one of his cooperators. And he had another fellow named Chip Hines, who was a friend of mine who just passed away. And we'd have these bull sessions. And in the day, it was in his little you know little old wooden barn. And there we had bales, and there was maybe ten of us sitting around just talking about different aspects of production. Yeah. And he was and he was just so ahead of his time. Like for instance, when I talked about the the whole AIing things and, and the short joining. I remember he came to vet school and spoke at my school. And I was like, oh, kid, hey, cool. How are you going? And, and he got in front of the group and he said, all right, guys, I've got a quick question for you. You've mated your heifers. What's better, 95% or 85% conception? And the whole crowd's like, 95%, of course. And I was in the back. And I'm like, 85%, kid. And he goes, thanks, Enoch. You ruined my joke, but that's right. If you got 95% of them pregnant, you've spoiled them. You've given them too long. And he's right. You don't yeah. get married to your heifers. You don't. I mean, you've got breed plan figures on every animal, and so there's obviously animals you definitely want to get pregnant. But for a commercial well, producer, we, we, the most important the aspect same. is getting we, pregnant. We do a bit of both and uh, join them a little longer, the heifers, and then fetal age the bottom numbers yeah. out. Yeah. So that's, the same, same And that's thing. an advice I give by some of my yeah. guys. We AI, then back them up, and then preg them, and then st- and encourage them to sell the lates yeah. on to somebody else. And I mean, obviously, you've got a huge value add on those lates. And yeah. I think Harry's... Uh, Lawson, a uh, friend of mine as well, he does the same. With, yeah. re, re, he's 100% AI, but he, he does a late join and then moves them on. And um, so, uh, so Kit Farrow, um, John and Paul Farmer, and um, Chip Hines are all kind of melded together. And then I got um, lucky in uni, um, a, a guy named um, Dave Van Meter, who was just awesome and just a great human being. And what I liked about him best of all is he was he was a serious like cattle vet, big guy. He was he was a uh, a lineman with at Cornell University, I think, and just a brilliant man. But he would he would quickly jump into talking about cats and how cats work to describe cattle. Like he wasn't one of those oh, I'm a cattle vet and these bloody cats ah, kick them, you know. He's, he just he was he just and and he was the sort of guy that would. I remember I remember one time I was doing a cancer eye and it was the second cancer I'd ever done and and uh, the the previous clinician had shown me the way he does it and it took quite a while and and I said to Van I said I did him this way before. What's your opinion? He goes. 
you got 15 minutes, Bergman, just get that eye out of there, all right? And then he just kind of would sit back and he'd just chip in with advice. And another guy similar was Cleon Kimberling, another great guy who would, he would allow you to make mistakes, but he would be sitting there like a hawk waiting for you and then he would just intervene. And that's what I try to do with my students when I'm with them. I try to, when I'm in the car, I say, look, I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but I'm going to ask you a lot of questions and I'm not trying to challenge you. There's nothing wrong with being incorrect. I just want you to think it through so that if I just tell you something, you're going to forget it. But if I make you struggle through it a little bit and work through the mechanics of what I'm talking about, hopefully it'll stick in your head better. And, yeah. and those two guys were just um, phenomenal human beings. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Dave and Ed. Yep. So, Good on you, Andrew. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for coming and having a chat. You know, you've, and the Gummins's because they're lovely. <laughs> no, you don't have to do that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You, um, well, you guys are fantastic people. You, thanks for doing this. And yeah, you're making a fantastic contribution to the Australian beef industry. And, oh, and you're the third vet that we've had on. Um, Woody and Begsy have already been on uh, before. Two of my favorite so, human beings. So we're getting some wonderful <laughs> um, vets on the on the um, Raw Rag podcast. And, well, and Begsy did the PhD in, in animal welfare. Yeah, Do- yeah. So Do- Dr. Dr. Beggs. We had a chat on animal welfare on oh. Raw. He, it was so good. He's got such a good brain. He really, uh, really can. Did, did he talk to you about how in Canada there's a big push, you know, away from just organic beef to say healthy beef? And and that one of their deals is, what if your what if your child needs antibiotics? Would you withhold antibiotics from your child? Why should we do that to animals? Yeah. And it just, but a lot of what Begs Begs is just an amazing human being. Full stop. Yeah, he is. Yeah. And as is Woody. Good on you. Thank you so much, Here's Ian. my friend. Good on you. Love your guts, man. Right up. If you're enjoying the Raw Ag podcast, make sure you rate and review on your favourite podcast app. 